Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contain high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. This is not personal in the sense that somebody looked around and said, you know, he's a bad person, we got to do this to him. It was, he fits the bill, so we're going to do this to him. The personal effect that it has on us and in our sphere of relations it's just so fucking devastating. And that's the part of it that I hope when people read this book and when leaders in that country read this book, that they take that away from it. Because fuck them. It's the kind of story no journalist wants to tell. The one of his own arrest and that of his wife. The story of his days in captivity, too much of it in solitary confinement very far from his hometown in Northern California. I thought I knew the story of Jason and Yegi Rezaian. After all, my Roads and Kingdoms partner Anthony Bourdain had talked often about their captivity while they were in prison, and he brought all of us together after their release. There was karaoke involved. But you have to read Jason's book about his ordeal. It is harrowing, intimate, and absolutely loaded with things I had no idea about. The full title is Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison, Solitary Confinement, a Sham Trial, High Stakes Diplomacy, and the Extraordinary Efforts it Took to Get Me Out. I met Jason in his Midtown New York hotel during his book tour to talk about Prisoner. It was a whirlwind of publicity for he and Yegi that brought him on fresh air, face the nation, and more. I'm honored to have gotten so much of his time for the podcast, but then again, that's just the kind of guy that he is. This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with extraordinary people around the world. All right, well, what's the drink we have today? We're looking at the original taste of uh, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, <laughs> I, I know. I really uh, brought out all the stops for Jason Rezaian. We got two cans of red Coke because there's nothing in dry January that says I can't drink phosphoric acid, right? Exactly. Yegi says it doesn't go with my uh, my 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 uh, book tour diet, but uh, we're gonna make an exception. Can we cheers, can, man? Can we toast with? Yes, please. Cans of Coca Cola. Cheers. <laughs> Taste of my childhood, right there. I know, Jesus. Yeah. There is a significance to uh, to the Coca Cola that will we'll get into in a little bit. It's not just a, a random uh, bit of junk beverage I brought in. Um, it's a very special bit of junk beverage. But we are here to talk about Prisoner, which is this incredible book that has um, taken over my brain for the last 
I'd say 36 hours as I really just chewed through it and took me to some places I'd never been before. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't want to go to every room that she took me into, but yeah. it's it's an incredible book, and I'm gonna you know we're gonna talk all about the how and why of that. Um, but I want to go back before you became the eponymous uh, prisoner to your earliest days as a correspondent in Iran, because I knew your name from from then, from reading your bylines in the Washington Post in particular, um, but also as a, as a freelancer before then, because you were, as you had pointed out in the book, a very unusual creature in the journalistic landscape, uh, a, an American with kind of full press accreditation inside Iran. Yeah. I mean, I, I went there for the first time in 2001, having grown up in a predominantly Iranian family in, in Marin County. So I, I knew something about the culture, and I knew something about the place that my my relatives have left, had left behind years earlier. My dad came to the States in the late 1950s. But um, he started traveling back in the, in the late 90s during the presidency of Mohammad Khatami. There was this little bit of an opening, and... Um, in 2001, that's the first time I went. I knew that I wanted to write from Iran. I didn't know if it was going to be possible. I didn't know if anyone was going to be interested in what I had to say. But I just figured if I keep trying, if I keep going for it, uh, I'll have this opportunity because there's so few people able to write in English and that really have a, an understanding and awareness of this strange context of trying to explain a country that we've decided is the most evil country in the world to an American audience, right? I understood both of the contexts of what America has against Iran. Yeah. Because I lived it since my toddlerhood. Um, and also what Iran has to offer the world and how we get it wrong. Look, I mean, the Islamic Republic is a bad regime. There's a lot of bad regimes out there. It's one of them. You've been to Cuba, right? I have, yeah. You know, Cuba's a bad regime too. But the, the ways that we describe its badness are not exactly the ways that it's really bad. It's bad to its people. It's bad to its neighbors. It's not a threat to our way of life over here on the other side of the world. So, you know, I, I, I took that as a starting off point and wanted to just show this place in all of its nuance, all of its color, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. And it's, it's just a lovable place with lovable people, right? As most places are, but I, I really tapped into that and wanted to write about it. That Cuba analogy is interesting because you you had studied with Christopher Hitchens, right, and had written about that for him, and that'll be a whole other podcast about having worked under that guy or studied under that guy. But you know that analogy was clear to you from from very early days, uh, the Iran and Cuba connection. Before I ever went to Iran, yeah, you know, I, I just I kind of hit on that when I was in Cuba. Thought to myself, hey, you know what? This is a pretty fucked up place, uh, but it's also a great place. Right. And uh, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. And there was no, like, rye cooter for Iran. Like, right. <laughs> you were it. Exactly. Like, you were, there was no Buena Vista social club coming out well, of Well, maybe uh, Tony was it, you know, taking the show there. In a yeah. Way. I think a lot of the reasons why your work was coming up also, which was you had been in, in long conversations with Zero Point Zero, Tony's production company, because you had been recognized as this guy who can deliver this sort of this message about this place intimately and, and authentically and, and uh, well-informed. 
and they actually decided to do the episode and they did it. You know, and that's how you and I met, obviously, was through Tony. But since we're talking about Bourdain, let's just clear it up. Was Bourdain responsible for your imprisonment? No. If anything, I, I look at Bourdain as um, one of the people responsible for my freedom in shining the light on our imprisonment that he did and also that CNN did by replaying this episode, which um, by his own reckoning was one of the most important favorite episodes of the show. So they played the heck out of that. Um, and every single time they did, people had to see my face and my wife's face and think to themselves, are these people spies? No, these are just two normal folks that uh, happen to be sitting having a conversation with our most beloved television personality. Maybe we should think about the trials and tribulations that they're going through right now. And I think it created this awareness around us that honestly nothing else could. That is something that people will sometimes ask, and I know you would mentioned it in your book as an emphatic denial of it. The timing was that he had been there a couple weeks. About five weeks before we got arrested. Right. The story of the book is the much broader context. And it would almost make too much sense if it was for having been on Tony's show. Right. I mean, you know, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the real reason you got arrested is so stupid and, you know, just full of, I mean, I guess the, the reasons that they were giving you uh, right. or telling themselves for your arrest, uh, I guess, were, were beyond idiotic. And, and that's, that's so much of the power of the book is this kind of incredible sense of claustrophobia that you're able to give people by walking the reader through what it's like which is not a feeling that's unfamiliar to Americans in 2019, what it's like to be at the whims of uh, an intolerant and ignorant <laughs> power. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people can relate to it a lot better than they could have um, if this book came out three or four years ago. The absurdity of the thing was, for me, the scariest part in some ways, because I'm thinking to myself, how are these guys going to tie up the loose ends of this? Right. Right. Are they going to have to do something really crazy like, you know, hang me? I had this sort of deep feeling inside that, you know, that getting out of here whenever it happens is not going to be a, an easy maneuver. It's not just going to be like, all right, here you go. Here's your stuff. Go home. Right. right. They, and, had, they had already started season one. And as you put in the book, they just forgot to write the ending. The ending, right? And it turned out, I mean, I, you know, I was on with Face the Nation this morning with, with Brett McGurk, who negotiated my release. Uh, and he said, This is a special envoy to ISIS, most recently, who resigned very publicly uh, for great reasons. For great reasons. And a guy that's been yeah. at the forefront of some of our most important foreign policy uh, actions in, in the Middle East over the past five years, he'll tell you this is one of the most dramatic things that he ever worked on. And, and those last hours were nuts, just nuts. The whole th I mean, the whole thing is nuts. For me, it's a, that, that kind of very glancing sense of identification with, with you just, you know, because we were both working as journalists and these are things that journalists think about. You became something of like every journalist's you know, kind of worst dream come true for for totally. five hundred and forty four days. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you you never want to be thrust into the middle of a, a story, but you know, in my sense, it was so crazy because it was a story that I've been covering so close, and that's not the first time that happened. I mean, you know, you hear about Michael Scott Moore mm -hmm. uh, in Somalia; he's covering pirates and he gets taken by pirates. I mean, it doesn't get more uh, meta than that. 
tell me about that day that uh, that you guys were arrested. It was hot. It was Ramadan. We were preparing to take a trip here to the United States. Uh, we'd been married for about 15 months. We were about to come back here uh, to collect Yegi's green card. We were on the, the cusp of starting that uh, bicontinental life that, again, a lot of journalists envision for themselves. Right. right? I'd been working for years, and, and here I was, finally, you know, with all of the pieces of that puzzle together, that we could, you know, reasonably do that, and we could come and go as we please, and this is going to be great. This was the first trip that Yegi, your wife, who uh, was an Iranian citizen, was going to take to the United States? She'd been once before. She had. We came in 2012 and spent... Uh, almost three months here as tourists. We came here in New York, we were in Boston, uh, we went to San Antonio, Texas, where my best friend from college uh, lives, and Yegi calls it Venice of Texas. You know, it's, it's got the river walk and all that. It's got the river that. walk. <laughs> it's pretty Man. nice. So you were preparing for that that second trip, but you were, th- th- already there was a little sense, like there was some weird stuff happening, and, and Yegi was trying to hustle you guys out of there, right? Right, yeah, yeah. she was like, you know, there was there was some uh, activity on our on our email accounts. We'd been hacked, social media accounts. The passwords were changed. Something was going on, and you know we weren't sure if it was you know normal hackers or you know the state variety. I think she was way more in tune with the fact that this could be something pretty nasty than I was because she grew up there, and you know you hear stories of people disappearing and. Um, and bad shit happening. They showed up and hauled us away to prison that night. I don't want to labor too much at the time in your imprisonment because people just read the book. It's, I mean, it's, <laughs> thank you. It's incredible. It's also as a as an aside. It's why journalists don't want to be the story, but when they're forced to be the story, you're. It's just kind of this amazing thing because I was thinking about some of the guys that you spent time with after you came out of solitary, who were also having a very similar, you know, Evan prison yeah. experience, but they're not writers. They are normal people. Kurds or Azeris who yeah, are just kind of... Yeah, business guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the the ability that you have to come out of that and actually describe it and build the narrative uh, of what had happened in there um, is, is a very special thing somehow. So I don't want to talk about it too much, but the one thing that really just struck me was the sense that you you got stronger through the process, and this is a very long process we're talking about, almost two years, right, 544 days in total, Um, but your strength and resolve kind of just built, and I think for anyone who hasn't heard about your story or hasn't read the book yet, that would seem very counterintuitive, and how did that happen? It, It wasn't as though the strength started building on day one, right? I mean, that period of solitary confinement is a real breaking down of your psyche, of your morale, of your personality, until you're really just a a scared animal. You know, you sink back into corners, right? And that never really goes away during that entire 544 days. But over time, you start to, to latch on to things that make you a little bit more comfortable. And you realize, okay, you know, Three months ago, they said that my my execution was imminent, and then nothing happened. And then they said, you know, I'm going to be here for life. But now they're letting me exercise a little bit. Why the hell would they let me exercise if they, you know, are not worried about my health? I think having 
the ability over time to to see my wife uh, and to talk to her and to have her in my ear saying, hey, you know, you're going to go on trial at some point, And the last thing you're going to do is uh, plead guilty because you didn't do anything wrong. And if you go back and look at the the, you know, annals of you know, Iran prisoner stories, there's usually, you know, a, a, a guilty plea in court. Yeah, because of this process that they've gotten pretty good at. They've gotten, exactly, breaking, exact, breaking people down. And, you know, at, at one point, one of my guards, and you, know, you got to delineate between the guards and the interrogators. They're the true believers and the guys that are just, you know, there to open and close the door, right? They're doing it for a paycheck. He said to me, he said, you know, I don't know why they didn't, take you to court right in the beginning when you were so scared you know Hmm. you're not afraid of them anymore and i i was still very much afraid of them right but at the same time i also knew that i did have some cards to play um and i had to play the ones that i had i mean you know you get dealt a pair of uh you know a a two and a seven but you still gotta play the hand sometimes right it's a pretty good coke by the way It's, (laughs) it's going down easy this was I, I, right. I mean, that's the that's why we're drinking this coke because that was part of the process. And after you got out of solitary and you had a couple different roommates at at, at different times, um, and then you started to get food. Yeah. Um, and you had some roommates who actually were able to help you guys eat pretty well. Sounded like. Yeah, I mean, look the the the, the two guys. I don't call them roommates. I call them cellmates. cellmates. You know, because. Makes Jesus. it sound more like college, exactly. My cellies, you know, um, you know, they were both well-established characters, and you know, you anywhere in the world, most places in the world, if you go to prison, if you have money, you're gonna have a better experience. I mean, yeah. they talk about, you know, who, who was it? Was it Pablo Escobar or whoever it was who built his own prison in Colombia? I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's making the pasta sauce in, uh, in Goodfellas. In, in, in Goodfellas, I mean, right. when I first uh, sat down and wrote the book, I referred to that scene. We cut it, you know, in the end because not everybody's seen Goodfellas, right? Fair enough. You and I have. They people, should right ev- after you read this book. Go and watch Goodfellas, Prisoners, and, and then Goodfellas, and know that part of my experience was a lot like that scene. You know, after they get busted for the Lufthansa heist, um, <laughs> right. you know, you cut the garlic really thin, right? And, I mean, um, you, you guys did, you had a full-on, like, you had a little stove. and a little Bunsen burner, okay. you know, like an electric, yeah, just a, a little electric thing. And they'd take it away from us for weeks on end just to fuck with us. And then it would come back, right? And then they'd take it away, and then we'd come back. If our families uh, would bring money to the prison door, you'd have an account, right? You'd, like, have a piece of paper that mm. they'd bring you once a week, and it says you have this much money to spend. And in the beginning, you're like, okay, I need some fresh vegetables because if I don't have some of that, I'm going to get scurvy and, you know, probably not going to make it. Um, And then over time, you kind of push the envelope a little bit. I want some eggs, right? (laughs) I want some meat. Um, And, you know, then they would push back and say no. And they say, okay, you know, you say no, I'm going to go on hunger strike, uh, which is really the ultimate desperation move right. in prison, it really is. I learned over time that, that I, was, I was an important prisoner. Right. You don't understand that on day one, but as it evolves, you realize, oh, okay, they've got control over my ability to leave this place. You know, they've got me locked in here. 
But I've got control over some other things. Right. Well, and you're saying you don't understand that on day one. On day one, they were telling you that, that the whole world thought that you and Reggae died in a car crash. Exactly. And that nobody cared about you and uh, nobody was going to come for you. And I'd, so, um, yeah, again, they were working hard to instill that. The relationship between you and your expert, as uh, as they're called, which is it's the creepiest fucking thing. That's what they call themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, just the idea. I, I mean, it's it's not. I'd never heard of an interrogator referring to themselves th- that way, and it's just like, uh, just gives you a little glimpse into their mindset that they actually. I, I, I don't know. I mean, they think they're doing. I mean, like it's what you said. The system believes that it believes in things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they they have the the uh, kind of the deep rooted belief that they're on God's side and God's on their side. So whatever they're doing must be right. But you and your wife end up in this place where you knew Islamic law and the law of the Islamic Republic of Iran better than these jokers. For sure. And, I mean, we had help with that. I mean, she had a a lawyer that was advising her outside. One of my cellmates who had been in for several years, this Kurdish gentleman who was a Sunni Kurd, you know, which is a kind of a double whammy right. in Iran. You know, he had at some point, I, I don't know how this came about, but he had a, the whole kind of penal code book of Iran. He was able to buy it. And I think they just gave it to him because, like, you're not going to be able to leave anytime soon. And you want to build a defense, here it is. And so, you know, he had this stuff memorized and he would tell me. They can't do this to you. You have to ask for this. You have to push for that. When you go to this court session and they say it's the last thing, the first thing you need to say is anything that you said during inter- interrogations was told, you know, you, you told under, under duress, under psychological pressure. You have to say that you've been psychologically tortured. All of these things, whether or not they're going to abide by those rules, are actual rules. And they will be noted. Yeah. And so I just went with it. I, I, I had to keep two sets of mental books, you know, huh. the whole time. You realize that you're in a process that that's total horseshit, but at the same time, you're in that process. And you've got the you're holding a two and a seven and you've got to figure out what it is. I mean, definitely just fuck them to hell because they will also use that legal code and this is something that you do see in Cuba. Where they'll talk about their constitution, right? As if exactly as if it was worth the paper that it was written on exactly. in practice. Well, in Iran, it's the same way. They talk about their the referendum, the Islamic Re- Re- Republic referendum. Ninety-seven percent of people voted in in uh, nineteen seventy-nine that they wanted an Islamic republic. It's like, All right, let them vote today. <laughs> Give everybody that vote, you know, back. The relationship between you and this man who calls himself your expert is at the center of the book in in a lot of ways just because it's it's all of the mechanisms of the state kind of come through him yeah. and all of the capriciousness and the cruelty and the the confusion on their side and they are all just transmitted in this vessel and it's been three years since you got out what do you think about him do you ever think about him uh less and less fortunately yeah right um i i wonder what he thinks about what's going on um, in his country, right? I think that they're losing a lot of the grip that that they have perceived to have had uh, over many years. But I also imagine that many of the people that have been detained since me uh, are being detained by the same organization within the 
Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And I imagine he's working on those cases as well. And I think about how, for example, uh, we'll take it back to kind of a, an American analogy, an American-Iranian analogy. In 1953, when there was the coup in, in, uh, in Iran that overthrew uh, the democratically elected Mossadegh, the, the prime minister, that adventure by the CIA became the kind of blueprint for future operations. Mm, right. In Latin America, in Africa, for toppling governments. And if you go back and read the history, there was a lot of dumb luck involved, right? I imagine that they think to themselves, all right, we got Jason on all this stuff, and, and, you know, we were able to secure this deal in the end. We're going to be able to do it again and again and again. And that just hasn't played out. And there's people that have been stuck there in these three years. Uh, People have been arrested since I was arrested, and I don't see anything happening to bring them home. It's a slightly different conversation because it's not necessarily between state actors, but that American line of of not actually paying ransom in that same way. Right. I mean, you were a hostage. Yeah, um, 100%. Not a prisoner on trial for espionage. But the Europeans, of course, will come in and just pay anybody to bring, and and it fucks the thing up. I can understand the the uh, the impulse and the general kind of um, lack of desire to say this is a cruel world and one of our citizens is getting chewed up by right. it. But the moral hazard is pretty strong. So I I just finished reading uh, Joel Simon. You know Joel? Yeah. From the CPJ. Yep. He wrote a book about hostages and you know different policies. It's actually coming out same day as my book. Um, and it's a really great read. A double header. Yeah. I mean, you All know. Right. Can we set the read prisoner first, watch Goodfellas, and then read Joel's book? There it is. Okay. That, that's the way to do it. Our three-step uh, entertainment plan exactly. for your late January. Uh, for your, the last few days of your dry month, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, he delves into how the different countries deal with it. And the, the conclusion of the book, I think, is that there is no right answer, mm. right? You know, people get stuck, taken hostage, whether it's by a terrorist group or a regime or um, or some other organization. And, uh, you know, there's not one way that works. And what happens is every time, uh, and I think I tried to bring this back to the very human level in the book, is it just rips people's lives apart, right? It certainly ripped our lives apart. There are moments in the book where I think the the rawness uh, of the the emotion of what it is yeah. um, comes through in in a response that maybe you or Yegi have, and also the I mean I don't want to hang a, a lot of stuff on you, but just the the bravery of you guys to consistently because they're always trying. It feels like your tormentors are always trying to congratulate themselves on what they're doing. Hundred <laughs> percent. Your lives are changed. Like you you are here now. You don't get to go back under current regime, which has been there since 1979. Um, so, I, I mean, these 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 changes are, are permanent. There's not there's there's not in that way the happy ending that it might have seen as the news media wanted to just kind of move on from your story. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's often the case, right? It's so much more complicated than that. I mean, the the path of destruction that they created for my family and me, specifically for my wife um, and her family, and for me, is something that we can't ever undo, right? And we didn't do anything to deserve this. 
And that's the part of it where it's just like, are we happy that we're free? Yes. Are we happy that we're healthy? Of course. Are we happy that we have opportunities and putting our lives back together? Without a doubt. But at the end of the day, the life that we're living right now is not the one that we had envisioned for ourselves. And we were not the ones who decided to, to change paths. And it wasn't like a natural disaster came raining in on our house. It was a man-made disaster, yeah. right, that targeted us specifically. Oftentimes, I thought to myself, this is not personal in the sense that somebody looked around and said, you know, he's a bad person, we got to do this to him. It was, he fits the bill, so we're going to do this to him. The personal effect that it has on us and in our sphere of relations it's just so fucking devastating. Yeah. And that's the part of it that I hope when people read this book and when leaders in that country read this book, that they take that away from it. Because fuck them. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's also the crazy thing is, as you pointed out, this is a, it's not a splinter group. It's at the heart of the revolution. Yeah. But it's not the only group in politics. Right. But they're the hostage takers, and it's this group of, you know, kind of zealots within the, the zealot republic. I mean, it's like they seem like the cream of the crop of uh, yeah. the, you know, dunceocracy. Totally. But, but in, in a weird way, there is a, a symbiotic relationship between them, right? You know, the foreign minister and the IRGC, but also us, right? Mm. Uh, and also the American news media. And uh, tell me about that. Well, I mean, you know, it's this this sort of call and response. You know, you talk about um, you know paying for hostages and all that, but you know, the, this notion of just raising the stakes. Mm. Every time there would be some good news about me, not good news, but you know, positive words for me and 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 a push for my freedom here. It would be counteracted with a response from somebody over there that says, yeah, we need to cut that guy's head off tomorrow in a very public way. It's just a really strange dance. There's another part in the book where you would describe Yegi's job as a journalist. She was at Bloomberg at that point? At that point, she had left Bloomberg and she was working for The National. She was at The National. Between the two of you, you had contributed so much to journalism from within Iran that was kind of this this every man like here's what Iranians want and love and believe and hope for reporting and you 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 did have a value in that sense and because you were telling this story that's a story that I still want to believe in any country <laughs> that's under those circumstances and it's the one that the revolutionary guard must have hated more than anything well and I think that's one of the ways that they did win not only were were our pens silenced the reporters that have still remained are much more timid it's not a coincidence that the number of bylines from Tehran has decreased dramatically over the past three or four years that's really sad and you know this is not one of these things where it's America America's fault or the American media's fault this is the Iranian leadership's fault. They can't have it both ways. For years, they've been complaining about the image that they have in the world. Why do they say this about us? Why do they say that about us? Well, you know what? You just close the door on on good press for a very long time. It's funny because I, I went and followed Team Iran, uh, Team remember, Melly. Yeah, I remember around, reading that at yeah, the time. Around Brazil uh, during the World Cup. In 2014, right? 2014, which yeah. would have been... Like right around the time that you got in we, prison, right? 
it was, uh, I think the World Cup ended a week or two before we got arrested. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. Jeez, I hadn't even thought about that. But it was pretty fun because you had Australian Iranians and yeah. British Iranians and American Iranians and Iranians from Iran were all like partying. The team was playing super good. Had an incredible backline defense. Like one of the craziest nights, uh, you know, publicly in Iran that I remember is the night that they lost to Argentina on that very late goal. Yeah. Uh, uh, by Messi, you know, in penalty time. You know, it, it was a festive atmosphere in 2014. Yeah. You know, people felt like things were moving in the right direction. I'm always more naive than I should be about the opportunity for things like sports and food and booze and weed to bring us all together you know like it's god damn it it's just not that simple sometimes i remember being in front of the team's hotel and you had three different flags right you had like the old flag with the lion of the shah right you had the empty the flag with nothing in the white middle uh and then you had the islamic republic flag everybody's kind of waving around they're all hugging and putting the same color face paint on and then you had the goons from inside the hotel were trying to like take flags from people's hands right. and hand out their own like Islamic Republic flags and you're just like wait this is not like it's not goon o'clock right <laughs> you know, like, exactly we're here it's Iran o'clock exactly right? yeah. and and I guess those are the little just cracks that you would see there that just you know ruin all of all of my pretty fucking narratives uh, and and make it less surprising that a week after the World Cup ended they would shit on their own potential as a country by doing what they did to you agreed but i think that you know my great hope still is that uh the people in that country are as a society moving in the right direction even with all of the impediments that have been placed on them by their own regime and sanctions and even in spite of all of that they know what they want and they want a better freer more connected future they want a more connected present but they know that that it's not there for them just yet, um, and I'm but I'm bullish, you know. I just am because of the sentiment of the people. Yeah, and their ingenuity, their resourcefulness, their high levels of education, uh, and also seeing through the fallacy of um, religious government. I mean, I think that's a fallacy that Europe saw through a long time ago. But you know, these things come back; they come back in cycles. But the epilogue basically makes that point, and it's just like immediately twists it into what happened to me in 2014 to 2016 is like, keep your eyes open. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Here in America. Um, And I do get this feeling of the meaning beyond your own personal suffering, which is great and 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 a horrible thing knowing you to painful to even read um about in in places but there's there's there is a larger story here that this is very much connected to things that we're starting to see on our soil i mean i can't imagine what it's like to even have this conversation with me and you know where i'm just one of a dozen assholes this month who are going to draw you back into the day you got arrested, what it was like to be under the foot of this expert, you know, all of this crap, and you're doing this willingly and you're doing this um, uh, intentionally, but it feels like that there's, it's it's something more than selling a book. It's like, this is, this is an important story for a reason right now. 
I hope that it's instructive, you know, for those reasons that you say. Um, look, when we started this process, it's about just over two years ago, so many of the things that have happened, we could not have predicted, right? I mean, the whole case about Jamal Khashoggi and um, was somebody I was just starting to get to know. Uh, right, he was a colleague of yours at the Post. At the Post, yeah. His murder and the you know the horrific nature of it it just brought so many things back front and center for me you know for the first time since coming back doing this job i don't feel 100% safe in washington dc and people look at me kind of funny sometimes when i say it people that don't work in this industry <laughs> you know yeah people that do can kind of feel that tension i'm nervous about what the uh, what the next few years holds for this country uh, I think we'll get past it. We have to get past it. I feel fortunate that personally, because of the platform that I have and many people in positions of um, some importance, whether it's in the government or uh, in the media, have my back, right? Uh, that I feel like I'm in a pretty good place. But overall, you know, for what we do, um, I don't feel like we're particularly on solid ground right now. These things we believe about, you know, the idea that food being a commonality or a, a desire that you'll see in people anywhere in the world to have a better future, be more connected, see more opportunity for themselves and their kids. There's something else that ties us all as humans, which is the capacity for our systems to go totally fucking... Fucking haywire. Haywire. Totally. If you asked a lot of liberals... Something they would say, well, American exceptionalism is, you know, it's sort of frowned on in, in that in that circle. But they must believe it because I believe that there's not enough of a feeling among the general population on both sides of the spectrum that the Islamic Republic of Iran could be us. I mean, right. And, and there are people who are actively trying to create that here. Here. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you one would hope that. Uh, the the foundation is solid but i mean look if we have a, a a massive financial overhaul or whatever we called it in 2008 if something like that happened again i'm not so sure how well we'd get through it this time around yeah At, you know in terms of our our um our systems and our uh traditions our values and and things that we've kind of just accepted as fact for, you know, yours and my lifetime. That's a scary thought. Let's go back to that part where you were bullish. What were you bullish about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like oh, we're running out of time, but Jesus, that's dark, man. Look, I guess my dad, you know, he, uh, he passed about eight years ago almost, and he, uh, he used to tell me, son, if you worry, you're going to die. And if you don't worry, you're going to die. So don't worry. <laughs> uh, that's good. All right. I mean, it's been a pleasure knowing you, doing some karaoke with you. Yes. Having a, a, a common friend, uh, an advocate in Tony with you. Reading this book has just uh, kind of blown my mind. It, it, I, I thought I knew this story. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like I, 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 I knew it. I had talked about it with Tony when it was happening, like 
all of this stuff and felt like I had some kind of interact inside track. I had no idea. It's incredible. I need to just we need to tease people into getting this book. And, yeah, um, and, and they should have a couple of cans of Coke with them while they read it. <laughs> They'll get jacked up in some ayahuasca, and then <laughs> and then it's all done. Jason, thank you for being a hell of a writer and for um, going through uh, the process of putting this out there. Well, it's been it's been a struggle, but um, having friends like you and having the opportunity to talk about our experience is a really nice thing. So thank you. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Roads and Kingdoms. Taffy Mokanyadze is our editor and unanimous winner of the inaugural Brooklyn Well-Deserved Side-Eye Olympics. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Music by Dan the Automator. Over on RoadsandKingdoms.com, I want to give a shout out to one of our most read stories of all time, and it's still a good read. It's called 16 Things to Know Before You Go to Mumbai. Yes, it's a listicle, but it's very, very smart. It's written by Mansi Choksi, a talented and versatile journalist whose every word about her hometown fills me with regret for not having been able to see it yet for myself. Next week on the trip, a conversation in Brooklyn over hacked hot toddies from the office kitchen with Yasmin Khan, whose incomparable Palestinian cookbook, Zaytoun, is out in the U.S. this month. I genuinely believe that pretty much most of the world's problems come from the act of dehumanizing another person. And if all this book can do is, in some small way, offer a human connection to a place or a people that's more commonly associated with terror, then I'll be happy. We'll meet you there.